Our scripture today is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 18 through 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning and be with you and worship with you. We have um, about 24 people who would normally be worshiping with us at the In Covenant Retreat finishing up today, and Glenn McDowell is there with them. So uh, as we open, take time to open in prayer, let's just pray a special blessing on them uh, in knowing the Lord in their time away. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word to us together, um, we uh, lift up those who are... Uh, taking time to retreat, to refresh, to renew, to learn about your work here at Liberty Fairmount, to get to know each other. And uh, we ask that you continue to bless them today, even this morning as they worship and as they have lunch together and as they prepare to come back to the city. Uh, Thank you for a great weekend away with them. We ask now that you would be present with them, but also with us. We need you. We depend upon you. And uh, we want to know you more deeply through your word. Father, we... uh, we would ask you to do that now through your grace and your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we, uh, as Andy said, we're entering into some study of prayer. You know, it's, you might think, I don't know if I want to admit that I'm bad at prayer or that I struggle with prayer. But even Jesus' disciples said, hey, Jesus, how should we pray? And he had to teach them. He had to teach them what it looks like to pray. And so in the same way, as we think about 
uh, the kinds of obstacles that would stand in our way for following God, where he would want us to go and want us to follow him, one of the things we realize is we really need to learn to pray together. Uh, know God through prayer, in depth, know what he's like. And unless we spend some time looking at that, how are we going to know? The disciples didn't know. They had to ask Jesus, how are we going to know how to pray and what a difference prayer makes in our life and our relationship with God if we're not looking at it intently? I remember, I, I shared this with some of you, and some of you haven't heard this. I was uh, with Ezra one evening. He came down uh, from bed. He was supposed to be in bed. And he came down, and he uh, said, Dad, I want you to pray with me. I want you to show me how to pray. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I, you know, I was looking at this scary game that you said not to look at, and now I can't get it out of my mind, and I'm really frightened. And uh, so show me what prayer looks like. And so we opened the scripture to Colossians, and we, we looked at a simple truth that said that in Jesus, you have, Ezra's my son, by the way, if you don't know that. In Jesus, you have been delivered from the kingdom, kingdom of darkness, and you've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And I said, Ezra, let's, let's begin to explore that and what that teaches us about who God is and what he's done. And so we began to look at God's character through that verse, and we began to adore God as we prayed. And we began to confess the ways that we forgot he was like that. And we began to give him thanks that he would stand in our place, that he would be delivered over to the cross and, and endure wrath and separation from God so that we could be transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then we asked for what we needed, which was comfort and hope and peace and protection in that truth. And as we were praying, Ezra stopped and he said, Dad, do you feel that? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, do you feel that? That I feel the Lord. And I said, yeah, that's the Lord's presence. It's his spirit. He's ministering to you. He's applying to your heart the truths that we just talked about and prayed about and spoke about. And he said, that's amazing. Our Lord's amazing. And I said, I know, I feel him too. That kind of experience of God in relationship is what prayer is centered on. Experience of God in relationship. It's what it's centered on. And so as we think through prayer together, we're going to look at some of the amazing things that come from our relationship with God as we pray. And this verse sets it up for us really well. What we're going to learn from this verse is what, you know, these verses, is what um, that through prayer, God allows, through prayer, God allows his people to share in his revealed purposes. Through prayer, God allows his people to share in his revealed purposes. Now, we're going to unpack that, and we're going to look at three things regarding this question. What should be done? What should be done about the fact that God reveals his purposes through prayer to us? What should it look like in our lives? And so we'll look at these three things. We're going to look at how we can share in God's purposes in prayer. We're going to look at how we can share in God's grace in prayer. And we're going to look at how we can share in God's faithfulness in prayer. God's purposes, God's grace, and God's faithfulness. First, share in God's purposes in prayer. You know what? Uh, I was just looking at the definition of purpose. Purpose is knowing the reason for the promises God makes, right? What are his reasons for God making promises? That's what sharing in prayer, sharing these things in prayer is about, and it's defined as. Look at verse 23. What are the reasons for the promises God made to David? Verse 23, and we're going to look at 19 as well. In verse 23, we see it's to establish 
his people forever. God's purpose, God's promises, the purpose of his promise is to establish his people forever. In verse 19, it's also for the instruction of mankind, humanity. Men and women, people from every age, from every nation. Okay? Now, look, let's contrast this so that we can get a picture of this. We usually begin prayer with what? With our purposes in mind, right? Oh, dear Lord, I want this job so I don't have to worry about money and, I don't ha- and I'll be able to pay my rent. Or, oh, dear Lord, I want this relationship to work so that I won't be alone and so that I know that I'm okay and I'm worth being loved. You've thought like that or you have friends who have thought like that as they begin to pray. We take our purposes when we approach the Lord, but we're learning something different here from David's model in this prayer. The idea is that David begins his Lord, his, his prayer, knowing the reasons for the promises God has made. He begins there. Look at verse 23. It says, you redeemed, right? You redeemed. And 24, established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever, and you became their God. Now, let's look at redeem for a second. Uh, one of my seminary professors, Ed, Edmund Clowney, um, he wrote a book called The Unfolding Mystery that talks about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. It's a great book, and it's very helpful for you and your faith as you grow and you learn about the gospel and how to pray. But one of the things he used to say is he would remind us that the redemptive story, the biblical story, in that story, God's people were not God's because they were choice people, but they were God's because they were chosen. And so the word redeem itself means to buy back from slavery, to buy back from slavery. And God chose to do that, to rescue his people, to buy them back from slavery, Edmund would point out, before he'd ever given them a law to obey, before he'd ever given them a code to live by, before he'd ever given them religious practices to put into effect. When they were enslaved, and they were dying, and they were suffering, and they were the least among nations. God chose to redeem them, to buy them back from that slavery. And the great message of the gospel is that God chose to redeem you, if you believe in his son and the work of his son, from the slavery of sin and death. So there's no longer a threat to you. He chose you in what he's done. So he didn't give, God didn't give his people's commandments first and then rescued them. He redeemed them from slavery by the blood of the lamb. We see this on the doorposts. So there's all kinds of continuity. And Paul echoes this in the beginning of his letter to the church in Rome, right? He says, a righteousness from God has been revealed in the gospel. It's not a righteousness from people. In fact, he goes on to teach that no one is righteous, not one. All right, so we have the idea of being redeemed, but we also have the idea that this instruction for people is for people everywhere, for people from everywhere and from every background. Now, that might surprise you because you think about the Old Testament. If you read it at all, you read the Hebrew scriptures at all, you know that there's the unfolding story of of Israel. And yet, one of the things... That, uh, that David prays here is that this is you revealing your purposes to us for the redemption and gathering of people for yourself is for the instruction of every nation, for the instruction of the peoples. Now, verse 19 says, you've spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is the instruction for mankind. This is often missed about God's promises and the way God's promises connect with people from every nation. But God wasn't just after the redemption and blessing of Israel. 
Think about that for a second. He wasn't just after the redemption and blessing of Israel. He was intent on extending that redemption and blessing to people from every nation. And this is part of the mystery of the gospel that was blowing people away when it was dawning in Jesus' time when he came on the scene. The fact that these promises would go to people from every nation was a a surprise ending with Israel so much in focus as the establishing of God's people. Why is that? Well, the promise was always there for the nations, for people from every nation. Think back, way back in Genesis 17, God reveals the reason for his promises in his covenant with Abraham. And that covenant reads this way. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Sorry, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and said to God, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Do you see the promise embedded very early on? When God is establishing his people, he's establishing his people from every nation. It's not just Israel. He began the story there, and he began to flourish it and and, um, bloom it beyond to the nations of the earth. Is that not enough? Think about Isaiah coming much later. Isaiah prophesied this. Consider the great promise to the nations that God revealed much later in this. Isaiah said, God's will was that on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine full, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Do you hear it? Instruction for the nations. There is a hope present in the salvation of God in his work through the ages that is meant to go to you wherever you're from and wherever you're at. You begin your prayer... There. What is the reason for the promise God made to David to establish his people forever? An instruction for people from every nation. Well, you say, I thought Christianity was exclusive. Well, let's look at this a couple of different ways. I mean, the first, the, the first thing I would say is no. No. Other religions teach that you must behave a certain way to be in. Other religions teach that you must behave a certain way to be in. Christianity levels the playing field. Instead of saying you have to be this way or you're not in, Christianity levels the playing field and says, it's not what any one of you from any culture or background does, but instead it's what Jesus has done on your behalf that brings you in. It's no matter where you're from. Religion says, do this and you will live. Christianity says, be in relationship with the one who has done this for you, and there's life in that. There's a difference or consider this, in his book, The Reason for God, uh, Dr. Keller writes, helps to set the context for what relating to people from every nation look like, even in early Christianity. The earliest church, this is what he writes. He says, one of the paradoxes of history is that the relationship between the beliefs and the practices of the early Christians as compared to those of the culture around them. He goes on to write, he says, the Greco-Roman world's religious views were open and seemingly tolerant. Everyone had his or own God, but the practices of the culture were quite brutal. 
The Greco-Roman world was highly stratified economically, with a huge distance between the rich and the poor. By contrast, Christians insisted there was only one true God, the dying Savior, Jesus Christ. Their lives and practices were, however, remarkably welcoming to those that the culture marginalized. The early Christians mixed people from different races and classes in ways that seemed scandalous to those around them. The Greco-Roman world tended to despise the poor, but Christians gave generously not only to their own poor, but to those of other faiths. In broader society, women had a very low status, being subjected to high levels of female uh, infanticide, forced marriages, and lack of economic equality. Christianity afforded women much greater security and equality than had previously existed in the ancient classical world. During the terrible urban plagues of the first two centuries, Christians cared for all the sick and dying in the city, often at cost to their own lives. Now why, Dr. Keller writes, would such an exclusive belief system lead to a behavior that was so open to others? It was because Christians had within their belief system the strongest possible resource for practicing sacrificial service, generosity, and peacemaking. At the very heart of their view of reality was a man who was also God who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. Reflection on this could only lead to a radically different way of dealing with those who were different from them. It meant they could not act in violence and oppression toward their opponents. The reason for God's promises to David were to establish a people from ever and to instruct people from every nation. Now when you pray... It's important when you begin to pray that you share in God's purposes for the promises he makes. You do this when you pray. And God wants you to share in a portion of of why he makes his promises. Begin your prayer by consciously reviewing the reason that God makes those promises. To establish his people forever and to instruct people from every nation. And ask God to reveal to you how you should shape your prayers as you talk with him in light of those truths. So, through prayer, we share in God's purposes, but also through prayer, the second point is that we share in God's grace in prayer. We relate to God differently. We share in his grace and relate to him differently in prayer. Look at verse 21 and 27, the the second part of it. David writes, according to your own heart, God. And in 27, the second part, he says, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now look, We've already said it. Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. It's a relationship with living God that Jesus has brought to you and earned you the right to have with boldness. Humility, yes. There's nothing in us that would deserve that relationship. But boldness in that it's been won for us and it's accessible to us. David is using intensely intimate words with God. Verse 21, he says, according to your own heart. According to your own heart. Oh, my word. And therefore, courage. And yet David begins his prayer by acknowledging his own undeserving state. He says, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house? In fact, the Lord had just said, you know what, David? You're not going to be the one to build the temple. You're not going to be that one. But your son would instead. And yet David is relating to the Lord. He says, according to your own heart, therefore, courage. Oh, my In religion, you try hard to please God and perhaps he'll bless you. In Christianity, God invites you into intimacy of relationship in spite of not being worthy of it. 
in spite of not being worthy of it. Why? According to his own heart. God's heart beats for you. His achievement of his promises in the gospel are aimed at your well-being and your flourishing. And that brings you courage. It's only because God allows us to be intimate with him through what he achieves and not through what we achieve that we can have the courage to connect with him in this way when we pray. How close, let me ask you this by way of illustration, how close do you have to be to know what's really on the heart of someone that you're intimate with? How close do you have to be to know what they really believe in their innermost being? One example is this. Anne-Marie and I have been married for 20 years this coming July, and together 25 total. We know each other really, really well. Um, We've slipped into that older couple thing where we finish each other's sentences and sometimes even show up at an event dressed pretty much the same way, the same color scheme. And she shakes her head at me and I shake my head at her. Um, We often answer people the same way and at the same time and even making the same kinds of uh, reactionary noises. Oh, you know, those kinds of things. In the same pitch, in the same inflection, at the same time. We know each other really, really well. And yet I can count on one hand the number of times we really knew each other's hearts at the core. And they were each, those times on one hand, were each when we were really desperate before the Lord in prayer, weeping and utterly without pretense, And there was a connection at our innermost level as we poured ourselves out together before the Lord with that much vulnerability. And we knew each other's hearts in a profound way, in a way that we aspire to the other times in life. What does it take to know someone's heart intimately? And yet here David uses the same kind of language in his prayer. Knowing the Lord's heart while being undeserving of that. What can explain such intimacy for the undeserving other than the gracious character of the Lord and his faithfulness to fulfill his promise on our behalf? Luther had this phrase. In English, it's translated simultaneously sinful yet justified. That's where the fire comes in intimacy and prayer because you approach God with humility knowing that you are sinful and you have no right to this intimacy that he's about to give you. And you yet approach him boldly because he's given you every right in the person and work of his son to approach him as father rather than as judge. When his disciples asked him, how do we pray? How does Jesus begin? Our father. Do you see? With the same kind of intimacy that Ezra comes to me and says, I need prayer. I need you to pray with me. I'm scared. Is the same kind of intimacy we share with God. Why? Because we know his heart. What does God require of you in prayer? Intimacy. It's not a checklist. You're not just asking for things that you want. You're not coming according to your purposes. The foundation of prayer is coming according to his purposes, and his purposes are beautiful, and they have your best interest at heart. And he desires to flourish you in the knowledge of him. And he desires you to share that in all of your life with everyone that you come in contact with, with joy and with thanksgiving. Because there's only one response that should flow. That should flow from such a a grace shown to you. Through his grace, 
The gospel is not just what saves us. It's what grows us. Will you look at the gospel when you pray? Will you understand his purposes? Will you understand the intimacy that it brings? He wants all of the walls down. He wants every pretense gone. He wants you naked before him. Are you prepared for a relationship with God like that? He would have nothing less from you. And he's overturned the fabric of the very universe in what he did on the cross and resurrection so that he could bring that to you. Are you really going to leave it go and not take it? So sharing God's purposes in prayer and sharing the grace in prayer is grace in prayer. But lastly, sharing God's faithfulness in prayer. Basically, what happens is when you look at his purposes, you look at his grace, you basically pray then according to his purposes. That's what happens. You share in God's faithfulness in prayer. You pray that God will do the very things that he's promised to do. The pressure, as I like to remind myself, and as I want to remind you, is on his promises. It's not on your shoulders. The pressure is on his promises. You can go to him. You can put that pressure on him. He wants you to press him like that. David shows it. Verse 25, and now, O God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken. Do it. Confirm it forever. You've revealed it to me. You've shown me your purposes. I want you to do it. I'm going to ask according to your purposes because of your grace and the intimacy you've shown me. I'm going to ask that you fulfill your purposes. Look, this is going to sound risky to you. It may sound risky to you. There is a portion. What does it mean to share? It means there's a portion of God's faithfulness that he gives to you explicitly to share with him in prayer. Share means a portion belonging to or due to, right? And so what that means here in prayer is that there's a portion of the Lord's purposes, of his faithfulness, There's a portion of the Lord's instruction for mankind and the Lord's establishing his people and being their God. It belongs to you and even due to you. Why? Because of the Lord's great love for you in the gospel. He secured it for you. Verse 27, for you, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Look at that boldness. He's appealing to his promises. He's pressing into God. You are the one who's faithful. You're the one who promises. And it's beautiful. In verse 25, and now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Do as you have spoken. And now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. Share in God's faithfulness in prayer. There's a beauty to his steadfast love. Pray that God will do the very things that he's promised to do. Look, by way of illustration, I'm going to take you again. I began this, the, uh, this, this time showing you what prayer looks like. And you have your prayer card. Hold on. This focuses in on aspects of prayer throughout the week. It's here for you. It's here for you to remind you of God's purposes and his, his promise of intimacy with you because of Jesus. And it's here to guide you to begin to pray in this way. This is a focus. We're zooming in to each aspect of prayer with this card each week for our month of prayer. We're going to focus on adoration for November 3rd through the 9th. But what I'm going to do right now is zoom out 
and I'm going to give you the sort of zoomed-out method that includes the various parts of prayer where you will put your heart in a place. You cannot, God is not a switch. You cannot turn him on and just say, show up. He decides when he shows up. It's like Aslan. You know, he show, where, Lucy's, where, where's he at? Where are you at? Where are you at? And she sought him until he found, she found him, right? Our hearts have to do the same thing in prayer. We can't just turn on the switch of prayer and say, okay, God's here. He'll show up and sometimes he'll overwhelm you. And sometimes he'll leave you with a sense of dryness. But let me tell you, the way his grace works, you cannot sense that dryness without him being present, working in your life to sense it. Because apart from his grace, you're dead to the things of God. So even your dryness in prayer is a gift of intimacy from him saying, you need me and you need to feel that you need me, right? So we're going to zoom out, and we're going to look at this. You've heard this, this uh, bit of prayer that we focused in on. Adoration, next week will be confession, there's thanksgiving, there's supplication. All right, those are, um, that's a little acronym, ACTS. There's a book of ACTS, it's an acronym, ACTS, so that Christians can remember, oh yeah, this is how I need to pray. Uh, generally, I need to adore God and remember to praise him for who he is. I need to confess the ways in my life that I forget that he's like that. I need to give thanks for the fact that Jesus went without these things or the result of not having these things so that I could have these of God. He was judged on my behalf so that I could be brought into the family and brought into the kingdom. And then that changes the way that I ask for things. So look here at this truth that we've, we've been looking through. What does praying this way look like? Teaching. The very first thing you need to do when you sit down to pray is that you need God, you need to understand how God reveals himself. So you need the teaching. The teaching here is that through prayer, God allows you to share in the reason for his promises, right? Through prayer, God allows you to share in the reason for his promises. Now, how do you adore God for that? If you were going to pray right now and adore God, what does it mean? Have you ever had somebody who's shown you a lot of love and a tremendous amount of, um, just loved you in very practical ways and meant a lot to you, the way that they poured themselves out for you, and you have a chance to sit down with them, and you have a chance to talk with them about the wonder of their character and why they would pour themselves like that and love you in that way. That's the same thing as adoration. You're looking at what God has done and who he is, and you're telling him about it. And you're saying, oh, Lord, you're beautiful. In this truth here, one of the things we do in this with acts is we put a T. So we'll do tax, all right? Instead of acts, we'll do tax. T, what's the teaching here? We've got to tether our prayer to his teaching, right? So the teaching here is that God allows you to share in his reason for his his promises. How do we adore God based on that? A prayer might look like this, oh Lord, you're generous. You're sharing your purposes, which are unfathomable with me. You've revealed it. You've given it to me. You've shared your purposes. Why? Who am I? Praying along with David, who am I that you would do this for me and for my household, that I would know your purposes? You're generous. And that you share his heart. You're, he's intimate. Lord, you're an intimate God. You share your heart with me. You want me to share, know your innermost heart. You want me to experience that and enjoy the presence of you intimately. You're graceful to share in your heart and your purposes. You give me rights to things that I have no merit for. You give me favor that I, don't have, I have no way to merit. Adoration. You're talking directly to God because of the truths that he's revealed to you.
Confession, what are the ways that you've forgotten today or this week or last week that he's like this? What are the ways you've forgotten he's generous and he's intimate and he's graceful? That he shares his plans with you. That he involves you intimately and through grace that you can talk with him about those things and you can talk with others about those things. What are the ways you've forgotten? So you've not only, based on the teaching, you've not only got to adore, you've got to confess the ways you forget he's like this. And here, friends, is where fire can often happen, and he shows up pretty powerfully sometimes, is when you move to Thanksgiving and you look first at Jesus, and you say, oh, Lord, I'm thankful that you, Lord Jesus, endured the silence and the alienation of the cross so that you could share, so that I can share in your plans, and I can share in your heart, and I can share in your work intimately. And you give him thanks for what he's done for you in the gospel and what that means to you, that he's generous and that he's intimate and that he's graceful. And now you move. Now, look, when? When do you move for asking for things? The last part, supplication. It means supply, right? Supply, supplication. Lord, supply. Give, give us these things. But what do you do? How do you tether supplication to the truth of Scripture? How do you do that? You first ask how your life would look if this truth about God and who he is and what he's done were explosively true in your innermost being. What would it look like this week? What would it look like for the rest of today? What would it look like 20 years from now if this were explosively true in your innermost being about who God is and what he's done? Now, as you move towards asking for things for people that are close to you or that are your enemy or however you want to lay it out, when you move to that, the first stop is to tether that to the truth. Lord, how would these friends, how would these colleagues, how would these enemies be different if they saw this truth about you too? What would their lives look like? What would it look like for them to grasp you this intimately and grasp your grace this closely and understand your purposes this deeply? What would their lives look like? Wow, you've got things to pray for now, don't you? When people come to mind and, and people that you're praying for come to mind and you think about them knowing this truth and how they would be changed, you're praying in the kingdom. You're praying the kingdom to come right there. And that's how the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. So we're going to, over this series, over the month of prayer, and we're going to keep praying right through Christmas and beyond. We're going to look at prayer together. We're going to look at the, the majesty and the beauty and the wonder of God's love for us. And we're going to pray. And we're going to pray weekly. And we've got our cards and we've got leaders who have contributed to those. So each week we're going to have a card to help remind you. It's simple. It's beautiful. It's life-giving and transforming. Will you come along? Will you pray? Will you take part and share in the Lord's purposes intimately by his grace? Use the truth of who God is and what he's done in the gospel to tether your prayer to Whenever you pray, do that. Because he's revealed his counsel and his heart to you in the gospel. And prayer is the first and foremost response to that. And remember the one. Remember the one. Please do. Remember the one who endured the silence of the cross. And that's so that you can remember the great freedom you have to relate to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we can call you Father.
that we no longer call you judge, that we no longer stand in fear, for the perfect one was cast down into death and lifted up through the resurrection so that fear would be done away with. Perfect love casts out fear. Thank you, Jesus. And yet, you do away with pride because there's no way that we're deserving to be in your presence. And yet, you invite us with intimacy and longing and revealing your heart and your purposes to us because Jesus had to die. There's no room for pride. There's no room for fear. Instead, we come to you in freedom, Lord, and we come thankful because you have liberated us. And if you, Lord Jesus, have set us free, then we are free indeed. We rejoice in your, the majesty of your work in your name on our behalf. It's in your name we pray. Amen.